and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Kate Klonick, Assistant Professor of Law at St. John's University School of Law. We will discuss her scholarship on the governance of private internet platforms, especially her new article, Facebook v. Sullivan, which was published in the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University's Emerging Threats series. So welcome to the show, Kate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's my, it's really my pleasure. Um, so I, I've really been impressed by all of your work on this subject, especially your paper, The New Governors, which was in the Harvard Law Review and frankly made a really big splash. I think uh, a lot of people have been talking about it. Um, and I thought your new paper, which we'll be discussing in a few minutes, uh, Facebook v. Sullivan was fantastic and so timely. I mean, I guess, as you were saying earlier, it's always timely when it comes to <laughs> Facebook and, and privacy issues. Um, but I'm really, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about these subjects. And I think listeners will be really interested to learn about them. But I was wondering if you could start by, by talking about your work on the governance of private internet platforms more broadly. So, um, your previous paper was titled The New Governors. What do you what do you mean by that? Who who are the new governors and what kind of what kind of governing are we talking about here? Yeah, that's a great question. So um I kind of actually think the best way to understand what I refer to as the new governors is to kind of think of it, uh, what speech used to look like, um, which was kind of this dyadic model, right? We, we kind of think of the important things um, when we think of freedom of expression. Um, we traditionally think of it being a, a battle between uh, the state on the one hand and keeping the state, the, the boot of the state off of the neck of like the individual or off of the neck of the press, right? And there's somewhat of a kind of a, an interesting relationship there. And that's kind of what we think of censorship as. Um, and so what the new governors are um, is kind of, it, the, instead of a dyadic model, it's now kind of this triangular model. This is kind of Jack Balkin's free speech is a triangle, um, his, his new kind of argument, um, which I really buy into, um, which is kind of the idea that, um, that now uh, individuals are not constrained, but the biggest threat to speech is not individual, is not the state, but in fact, kind of maybe censorship um, on platforms, um, and that platforms have developed their own way of governing uh, user speech um, as if they were little governments or kind of um, governance um, regimes. And that this is, you know, this is the new era that we're living in, is that there's no longer just one way that we expect um, harmful speech to um, to get reckoned with. There's no one way that we expect good speech to kind of get out there, uh, that we actually engage. We have this whole new um, platform for engagement, and those platforms are kind of the new governors. And it changes like the whole speech ecosystem ultimately. Why do you think it is that the government seems to play a less prominent role in the regulation of internet speech than it does in the regulation of speech in other contexts? Is like Section 230, for example, playing a role here? Yeah, I mean, Section 230, um, I mean, it's interesting. It does, Section 230 plays a huge role um, with American tech companies. That's absolutely for sure. Um, but I think it's, it's, um, it's something important to remember that a lot of these tech companies uh, were American and they were kind of um, kind of based in kind of American free speech norms, uh, how people kind of as the backdrop for the rules that were kind of come up with. Um, and Section 230, uh, which is kind of the known as the law that makes the Internet what it is today, for better or for worse, um, is uh, 
is kind of was something that happened in like the 19, I think it was 1997, 1997. Um, so I think that the Georgetown Law Review had published something around 1995, said like 85% of the content on the internet was pornography. And Congress kind of threw their skirts over their head and like panicked and like, we're like, well, we have to do something about this. Right. And they mm-hmm. came up with, um, where they come up, came up with what became the Communications Decency Act, kind of at the last minute, uh, a couple of congressmen kind of got together and decided to attach, um, realized that there was like a huge threat of censorship um, if uh, the these um, these sites were going to be held liable for content that was posted by other people on their site, and so created immunity um, for these sites um, from um, defamation suits and things things like that. Um, the whole CDA uh, got struck down in Reno versus ACLU, but uh, the uh, Section 230 remained and continues to kind of have created, carved out a space um, for platforms to operate in which they can create their own rules that are within the bounds of the First Amendment. Like the First Amendment doesn't actually apply because they're private actors, but like technically they can make much more restrictive rules than what like than the state could. And so that that kind of provides um, a different um, set of norms of what people expect to see um, on the on the quote unquote public private spaces of of something like Facebook. Right. So, if I'm understanding correctly, then by exempting explicitly exempting these internet platforms from direct tort liability for the speech that they're disseminating, so long as they follow the appropriate rules. It seems like what you're observing in your paper is that it really puts them in a position where they can and almost kind of de facto must come up with their own set of rules for regulating the speech that they're, that they're hosting. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think that, um, this is, it's, this is more and more true as time has gone on. So I would say that there, um, when Facebook was founded in 2004, content moderation, as we would call it, the, the rules that kind of decide um, what you can and can't say on Facebook and what's going Facebook's going to take down if you if you say it or what they'll allow you to keep up, um, those were being formulated. And I think as time has gone on, uh, they've become much more um, they've become much more uh, regulated in the sense of. Um, they've become much more regulated in the sense that they understand that content moderation is a part of the product. Mm. Uh, there is a, um, there is a, an idea that we have to meet the expectations of the users or that the sites have to meet the expectations of the users in order to remain, uh, remain viable. Mm. Um, and if they fail to do that, then they just really, uh, people stop using them and they become irrelevant. So have you found that those kinds of governance rules tend to be relatively consistent across platforms or is there more heterogeneity? That's a great question. It's changed a lot over the years. Um, and it, it's so interesting. So, I mean, it, Twitter, for example, used to be um, kind of the everything stays up. And, I, and Twitter still allows pornography on its site, um, but they put it behind um, – behind warning screens and things like that, or if Facebook doesn't, they just take it down. Um, so there's, there's still a fair amount of, um, there's still a fair amount of, uh, differentiation. And that's almost like it's becoming increasingly almost like a competition, uh, a way of differentiation to create competition in the market. So like, mm. to like basically, uh, 
there is a lot of, um, I, I mean, people still say, uh, like Facebook says, like, you know, you'll talk to, I'll talk to someone at Facebook and I'll be like, so why did you decide to take this down? They're like, well, we just decided it wasn't right for our space, but they can always take it to Twitter. Um, and I still think that that's like, I, I do think that that is, um, I do think that there's increasingly like a, you know, there's a little bit more of a wild, wild west feel about Twitter even now. Um, with all of its kind of movements to get takedown harassment and block certain types of content and everything else, and a little bit more of a Disney World feel about Facebook. Um, but it's uh, it's also just, you know, the nature of the platforms are really different. You have a closed network at Facebook, and most mm-hmm. Twitter is open and pub- mm-hmm. open to the public, and it's not people aren't behind private, private walls. And so that, the, all of those things really change what people expect in terms of the privacy that they expect to have. And uh, yeah and the publicity that they also expect to kind of garner if something goes viral or something, uh, something happens. Yeah. And so this may be hard, hard to answer, but I'm really interested in, in your thoughts on it, uh, especially given your work, but it's always, I've always wondered, like, do you think the different governance norms that these different platforms develop are driven primarily by the sort of, nature of the platform itself in other words sort of like the the sort of structure of how the platform works and the kinds of things that it encourages people to do sort of the competition norms that you were mentioning before sort of like different platforms for different things or is there also a role for sort of internal kind of normative values of the platforms and companies themselves driving how they go about um, coming up with these governance norms. I mean, I guess I'm kind of wondering, like, where do these come from and what sort of, what do you think is shaping them? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, um, it's increasingly, I mean, I've always been interested in it. It's a little bit harder to dig into like how exactly the, I mean, this is a little bit your first question, your first proposition, is it the nature of the platform themselves that shapes what the platform is going to be, right? So if it's like something like we just discussed, like if it's something like Twitter versus something like Instagram, like obviously there's just a part of how the engineering of the platform has been designed that changes mm-hmm. how people relate to it. Um, but I I think that that's really hard to empirically know. And there's not a mm-hmm. whole lot of like testability uh, to like, to kind of, to, you know, you don't have two different Instagrams that you can just put side by side and be like, this yeah. is why one did it well. And one didn't. Right. In fact, like it's unclear why MySpace is dead and like why Facebook is, you know, we have no idea. So I think it's very, that's a very like lessing code idea, you know, like this is like, mm. it's in the code, it's in the architecture of, of the, or like, or maybe even like a, you know, kind of in the design of the, of the platform changes its meaning, which I think is very true, but it's hard to kind of get quantitative about it. Well, what much of the work I did and what I thought you could kind of get qualitative about and kind of come up with some answers to was the the second thing that you brought up, which is like, is it about the people um, and kind of like the people that are there? And I do think that the development of these platforms at the time that it happened in the late nineties to early two thousands, the kind of the crucible of Silicon Valley at that moment and um, the way that uh, things kind of came out of that, uh, that, and the fact that it was all in America. I mean, all of these platforms are are American platforms. Um, And I mean, Spotify is pretty much the only one that's not. And um, yeah, there's just that you just see a very, you see a really intense 
um, homogeneity um, to to speech and to democracy ideals and to keeping things up um, when you talk to people and what they were thinking when they made some of these early policies, which I find really fascinating because, you know, they have, you know, I guess... It, both fascinating and kind of commonsensical, right? Like what else mm. were they going to do? Like they didn't, right. you know, right. they didn't, they didn't know that there was, there was nothing else for them to, to think that was, that they could do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that's always really struck me is the way that sort of the leadership of a lot of these companies often will characterize the nature of the platform in sort of normative or quasi-normative terms. In other words, what we're for is bringing people together or what we're for is disseminating ideas or what we're for is, you know, X, Y, Z, you name it. But they talk as if that's kind of motivating the decision-making process around how to govern internally what they're doing. And I guess I wonder, like, to what extent is that real? And to what extent do you think that that's just words. Um, I actually would say that like the mission statement of Facebook, making people more open and connected is not normative at all. It's actually incredibly descriptive. We have no idea whether it's a good or a bad thing to make people more open and connected um, Mm -hmm. or whether, or like what they think that that's doing for people. Right. Like, um, so uh, I actually think that's kind of one, that's a really interesting point. Um, And I think that, uh, when I talk to a lot of the people, um, and I still, when I talk to, when I am in conversations with Facebook, you do hear them say over and over and over again that they, when they're looking for a backstop to how they make decisions, they look to um, various parts of the, their, their mission statement. And the mission statement used to be much more simple. About two years ago, it kind of got a little bit more complex and it took into account, got a little bit more normative and took voice into account and a few other things and the safety of users. Um, but the the takeaway seems to be that like they don't have a constitution, right? They don't have something to bind themselves to the mast uh, with. And like, so there's a a sense that this is a little bit their constitution, except it's of course just a mission statement and it's Mm -hmm. completely uh, like completely could change at any moment as it's already changed. Um, So it's, but it does, I think reflect the values that they, that they espouse. Of course, they're also just words. And so those words can mean anything to anyone. And I think that Mm -hmm. just like in any company or any organization, there are probably people that find a lot of meaning in those words and feel very dedicated to them. And then there are people that are not. So it's, yeah. 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 Okay. Well let's, let's move on. Cause I think this is a good moment to move on to talk about your, your new paper, Facebook, the, the Sullivan, which by the way, fantastic title. I totally love it. Um, and I was wondering, I was wondering if you could explain to listeners who might not be as familiar with first amendment doctrine, the, the kind of sly reference you're making to the, really important First Amendment case, New York Times v. Sullivan. What what happened in New York Times v. Sullivan kind of as a way of setting up the dialectic that you're talking about in Facebook v. Sullivan? Yeah, well, in Facebook v. Sullivan's case in the early 1960s, uh, um, a a city commissioner out of Alabama um, had had a ad published against him or about him in the New York Times, and he claimed that it was defamation, and he sued the New York Times uh, for defamation, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And 
the Supreme Court held that because he was a public official um, as a commissioner, he uh, he had a higher burden to be able to prove um, his defamation claim. He had to show that there had been actual malice in making in printing the in printing the ad in order to to prove defamation. This was kind of established the idea, and the idea around this was that the the reason that kind of the court re- the thought that we should um, have a like a public official doctrine, which became later later became a quote unquote public figure doctrine. They kind of divorced it from this narrow idea of you having to be a public official. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea was really that they wanted to create wide open and robust discourse, and that there were various qualities. This is actually mentioned in the concur. I actually just went back and read this because I'm rewriting and turning this into a law review article now, not just an mm-hmm. essay, um, and expanding some parts of it. And actually, it's in the concurrence of Sullivan that uh, by Goldberg that basically says that um, also like public officials, just because they they have a pulpit, like as a natural course of things, because people just listen to them because they're public officials, so they have more access to counter speech. So we just want to have like they really like want to get out there and like rebut the lies that are like set against them. They have this, they have this ability to do it better than a private individual. Um, and so anyways, this kind of creates this standard of like two, uh, like a, this, this new standard of kind of how we're going to treat certain people. Um, and it kind of bleeds over into privacy torts, communications torts, like, um, public disclosure of private fact and, um, right of publicity. And it also bleeds over into ideas around, um, uh, intentional infliction of emotional distress. Um, mm. But there's a little bit of mess. The doctrine, like all First Amendment doctrine, it's a little bit messy. It's not mm-hmm. super clear. Um, and so, but that's kind of that's kind of the background of like with the public figure doctrine and First Amendment jurisprudence is we're going to come up with this set of rules in defamation, privacy, uh, and intentional infliction of emotional distress contexts uh, for judging and weighing like the First Amendment value of speech and the speaker and uh, against like all of the, the defamation, privacy, um, emotional concerns of, of, the, of the speaker. Yeah. So you really point out this fascinating kind of tension between the concept of a public official and the sort of value of newsworthiness and how it seems like in the New York Times v. Sullivan in context, uh, given the nature of media that was available to people at the time, they could, it seems like they could more or less reconcile those, those values, that kind of difference between kind of public, private, newsworthy, um, not valuable speech. But it, it seems like you're suggesting that in sort of the modern social media age, we're starting to see cracks in that, in that sort of happy or more or less uh, workable <laughs> compromise between the two. Yeah, totally. So one of the reasons to um, to uh, there's a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons to kind of have a public figure doctrine is because public figures can kind of, to a certain extent, be proxies for things that are, are of public concern. Not necessarily, mm-hmm. but this is kind of one of the ideas, and that relates to this idea of newsworthiness. Um, and so, public concern, newsworthiness. Um, there's a lot of um, it's very complicated kind of, kind of to make this distinction. But I guess the, the, like the joke of the title of Facebook v. Sullivan is that uh, Facebook in the title is taking the place of the New York times. Um, Mm -hmm. And it does this in like a very interesting way in that it is both the publisher like the New York times was, but here it's also um, 
it's also kind of like the Sullivan court. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they are making the determinations of public figure um, and newsworthiness on their platform and have their own robust doctrine. But they are also the New York Times in that they are like publishing, they are deciding whether or not to publish um, certain types of content. Yeah. And and in your essay, you you point out this kind of throwaway line from New York Times v. Sullivan and subsequent cases about the sort of unintentional public figure. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what is that? Maybe talk about talk about what that meant um, in New York Times v. Sullivan as compared to sort of how that concept would work today. Yeah. So that was actually in Gertz. Um, the, the case was, uh, Gertz and then Gertz was, uh, I think two or three cases down the line from Sullivan mm. and the court revamped the public. Like I said before, it was initially New York Times v. Sullivan is public official doctrine. It's gets kind of like mashed up as being about public figure, but it's actually public official. And it's not until Gertz that you start talking about the, like a broader category of public figures and they define, three different types of public figures. They have, you know, general purpose public figures, which are kind of like public officials, people that are just, it's very obvious on the face that like they are um, people that uh, uh, have access to uh, counter speech. Um, And then limited purpose public figures, which is kind of that they are conscribed by circumstances or time to this particular event. And that is what they are a public figure for. And then they put a footnote in um, and the footnote says we, you know, uh, we, they all put, they put this in terms of also, they, they put this all in terms of voluntariness. So people thrusting themselves into a public controversy, general purpose, public figures thrust themselves into a, into a controversy. And, uh, they put a footnote and say, well, if we will, we decline to discuss at this time, whether or not like the, the involuntary, per, like what in an involuntary public figure might look like, we find it to be, it would be something that would be exceedingly rare. And that was like, that's all like they, they kind of say. And so, um, I have, um, I have, uh, basically my, my theory is that like now we, where we're up to our eyeballs in involuntary public figures yeah. because of the internet, <laughs> like that, like, yeah. literally, I mean, I just watched, I give the example of Alex from target, um, like this poor kid who's just working his job as a bagger at target and he has a name tag on, you know, he's in a private store in public questionable to public accommodation, but like, he's just out doing his thing. He's not doing anything. And some person takes a video of him or a picture of him and puts it online. And then it weirdly goes viral. People become obsessed with finding out who he is. They eventually track down his name and like Twitter handle. He gets like 500,000 followers overnight. He's on Ellen DeGeneres three days later. And he wasn't even doing anything. <laughs> like he was mm-hmm. doing his job. He wasn't like, he wasn't doing cartwheels in Target. He wasn't like giving out free candy at Target to like, you know, children. He wasn't like doing anything, like anything. So like, uh, really becomes this fascinating ability for, uh, for us, um, to just be, become, um, to become public figures in every sense of the word that we'd think public figure might mean in just kind of a very, uh, like colloquial sense. Uh, and it's not clear why that wouldn't fall under the definition or what the court would do about it. Cause the court explicitly mm-hmm. doesn't say what they would or would not do with an involuntary public figure. They barely contemplate its existence. Um, so yeah, it's not even clear, like, would the court decide that the involuntary public figure gets more or less protection? Um, and I think that there's, I'm leaning towards an interesting kind of new development. Cause I'm right. Ra- as I said, I'm writing this paper up with Thomas Cadre. We're working, uh, we're going to co-write 
we're co-writing this and expanding this, um, like by, by oh, think, excellent. yeah, like three to, it's like going to be about three times as long and a lot more detailed. And, um, <laughs> what's so yeah. funny. Cause when you were talking about, it, I was thinking about his work and my interview with him a few months ago. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a really, it's a really nice, um, it's really nice skill set match for writing this piece. Given our, our two backgrounds, he's got much more of the first amendment public figure, um, uh, background and I have kind of this empirical background and um, so it works really well. But like one of the things that we've been talking about is this idea that maybe what we mean by public figures or involuntary public figures is like we want exceptions not for public figures but for sympathetic public figures. And what mm-hmm. when do those when do those happen and how would we define that? And is that what Facebook and some of these other sites are trying to capture in some of their quote unquote doctrine, some of their rules that they're coming up with? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting question. Yeah. And one thing that struck me reading your essay was the way in which these two different concepts of public figure and newsworthiness seem to sort of more or less coincide in sort of an old media world where the intermediator was making the ex-ante decision about newsworthiness. And they had kind of like a repeat player obligation, right? I mean, like the New York Times had to be responsible about what kinds of things it printed because it was going to keep printing things over and over again. And it wanted to sort of have the image of being a responsible steward of the news, as it were. Whereas it seems like you're pointing out that in the case of a company like Facebook, somebody else is making the initial decision as to what's newsworthy. And then Facebook has to kind of make an ex post decision as to whether or not the decision that they've made is the right one. That's a hundred percent correct. Like that's, that's exactly what's happening. And you really need like almost a time travel machine to be able to, to go back. And that's actually an example that someone gave me when they were telling me about having to make these um, determinations. It's um, you, there is, this process is divorced from kind of the, um, what used to really be like the standard setting that the press would provide. Um, and the reason that the courts deferred often to the press was because of the kind of, whether it was myth or whether it was, whether it was reality was kind of that the, the press were tastemakers of sorts. The press were experts in determining newsworthiness and what was newsworthy. And, the interesting part about this new speech ecosystem is we don't have that anymore yet. We're still mm. using the same, co- like the same words and the same concepts to make exceptions. Uh, but they've changed completely what they actually mean. And I don't, I don't know that there's that the press, for instance, um, you know, if Facebook determines a public figure by whether in part, by whether or not they show up in the Google news algorithm, uh, well, what if the person became famous on Facebook and then got written about on the New York times, right? Like that's like, what does that mean for the concept of newsworthiness? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like to the extent we allow news, the concept of newsworthiness to be driven by demand rather than some underlying normative value about what's appropriate and inappropriate. It just seems like it becomes totally empty. No, that's completely right. And I think that there's, I mean, it is a very empty, I mean, like a lot of like, like, I don't know, like, in my opinion, kind of like the concept of like the reasonable person, if you really do kind of, um, when you drill down on it, it does kind of become like a pretty, like a pretty empty uh, uh, kind of notion. But it does a lot of work if you don't drill down on it. So it's hard. To, like, <laughs> it's like it 
it's a really, it's like a really, yeah. it's like walking out really slowly yeah. onto the ice. Like, do you really yeah. like, do you know how, like, you know how yeah. completely deadly it will be if you go too far, but like, yeah. yeah so I don't know. Yeah. Don't, don't look behind the curtain. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, anyway, this is, I once got called more legal realist than legal realists. So like, I think that this is now you're, now you're discovering that the hard way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so you make some really interesting suggestions toward the end of your essay about how about how Facebook might consider thinking about sort of wrestling with this problem. Maybe you could talk a little bit about about those observations that you make. Yeah, um, I'm. I think I'm going to kind of revamp a bunch of them, but uh, I think that one of the things that I've said both in Got New Governors and in this paper, and it might finally, fingers crossed, be coming to fruition, is the need for basically a decentralization of power and like the creation of an oversight body that's independent from Facebook that either works on appeals of like user speech or works on these hard determinations of newsworthiness, which right now are tasked to policy like policy executives at Facebook. Um, And I think that one of the interesting things is it seems like Facebook's at least in theory committed to doing this. Zuckerberg said a couple of weeks ago that he was going to create such an an independent oversight committee. And they've asked me to be a part of like, I'm not, not be, I'm like unpaid, but like an unpaid consultant on the, on kind of some of these ideas um, in creating it, which would be a kind of a multi-stakeholder group, a lot of really hard questions. How do you get a, like a group that's representative of the global users of Facebook? How do you, um, how, how do you make that group not so Im- incredibly large <laughs> that like it's, uh, that it's, that it's still worthwhile and still efficient um, and does good work? How do you bind how does, how does Facebook bind itself to the decisions of that court? There's just like a lot of things going on, but I think that's the most promising. And I think that's what uh, Thomas and I are going to spend a lot of time unpacking since that happened kind of after I wrote Facebook v. Sullivan um, and the unpacking and like the end of the, of the article that we're writing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so in, that's really cool, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone better to be, to be doing something like that. Um, and they're really lucky to have your help. Um, yeah. Um, so it, in closing, I wonder if you could, you know, just where do you see this going in the future? I mean, do you think Facebook is making steps in the right direction or the wrong direction? I mean, they're, they're seeing a lot of, you know, one privacy scandal after another, is that reflective of problems or reflective of them grappling with those problems? Do you think? Yeah, that is such a, that's such a good way of putting it. I think that it's a little bit of both. I also think that something, and I, you know, I don't write actually a ton about their data privacy stuff um, because mostly what I concentrate on is like them as a speech platform. Um, And I, I was actually just kind of like, thinking as I was like lying in bed last night and thinking about this like most recent kind of data scandal that all of the most recent data scandals lately have been about data um, and about user privacy and that there has been a huge drop off in the number of scandals that seem to have happened based on taking down or keeping up the wrong or the right types of user speech. And that was not necessarily true. There was the scandal for a while. It seemed like there was constantly a new speech scandal 
every, I mean, I have like a list of them. There was the Cleveland, the guy who went on Facebook and uploaded it, live streamed a murder, right? He shot a guy mm-hmm. in the head on, in Cleveland. There was the napalm girl, um, takedown that created like a real sea change at Facebook um, in terms of how they dealt with these issues. There have, I mean, there's the breastfeeding examples. There's, um, there's, uh, you know, a ton, a ton of um, examples of kind of oh, the Donald Trump Muslim ban staying like conversation around Donald Trump's Muslim ban staying on the platform um, when he was running for election in 2016. Um, there's, there's been a, a great deal of, uh, of coverage, um, on this stuff. And, and then not at all for like the last seven months. And I was actually wondering to myself, does that mean that they're doing it right? Or they're just better at hiding how they're doing it wrong. <laughs> and, I, like, and I like had this really, yeah. like the really dark moment, <laughs> like, I'm, like kind of being like, uh Oh, <laughs> like maybe, you know, I don't, I don't know which it is. Um, and I kind of feel, I, I'm wondering if it's kind of the same thing with privacy. I also feel like people just simply don't understand the mechanisms that go into some of these decisions and the, and some of what's happening in some of these privacy things. Um, so there's a little bit of like kind of the outrage machine kicking off. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, I think that my sense internally is that they're doing a lot of work. I'm putting out a lot of feelers in a lot of different directions, but it's unclear whether that's to kind of appease people and give them the sense that, uh, that they're doing, that they're, that they're taking people's concerns seriously or whether they're actually going to drill down and take a lot of those ideas under advisement. And I think that like, I think it'll be a little bit of a mix, but I actually think I'm optimistic that it's in their best interest to create things like the oversight committee, because for, for one, it just offloads really crappy decisions that they don't want to be responsible for to another party. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's just like a very, (laughs) it's a very smart move for them. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that some, I think that they're going to get there. I think it just, um, I, I don't know what's going to happen with the privacy stuff, but I do think that it's kind of, I'm hopefully thinking that it's improving in terms of the speech stuff. (laughs) <laughs> well, we can only hope, yeah. and I, I, I certainly hope you're right. Um, so, Kate, it's been great talking to you about your work, and I really look forward to seeing the new and revised version of, of your essay. Yeah, thanks so much for giving me a chance to talk about it. This was really fun. Elvis was a friend of mine and a friend of the world. He became the king and remained the king of music. He'll go down in history as a legend forever. He was born without much money. No one knew his name. He went to church on Sunday, and there, with his mother, he sang. Hard times, there were many. Some, they couldn't understand. Why this man named Elvis 
made music that changed the land. He made this whole world happy with his music and kindness too. He always remembered the poor. He remembered his family too. He made his fortune and his fame and his music is here to stay. But his life was very secluded. Bodyguards protected his way. He was the only living legend and his name will never die. When he sang How Great Thou Art, he could make you cry. Elvis, we'll never forget you. You're the king of rock and roll. And now that you're in heaven, God be with your soul. Now that the lights have faded and the limousines have all pulled away, the king is with his mother. But in our hearts, he will always stay. Thank you.